Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. They tell me four things that they really cherish and would like to keep safe in a time capsule, but they also tell me one thing they'd like to put in there so they can bury it in the ground and forget about it. My guest in this episode is the stand-up comedian and writer Rob Carter, who is probably best known as his alter ego, Christopher Bliss. Now, you may not have seen Rob being hilarious on 8 Out of 10 Cats Do Countdown, or his TV special Writing Wrongs, or as Lance in Danny and Mick. In Peep Show, Question Team, Mallory Towers, Siblings, or Fresh Meat, or any of the other things he's done on TV and on stage, particularly at the Edinburgh Fringe. If you haven't seen him, then you've missed a treat. I think he's one of the funniest young performers around, and I'm fairly confident you will see him soon. And, obviously, agree with me. One thing you're bound to discover now about him is that he is a really lovely man, and either generous with his time or completely unaware of time, as he's just had his first baby, and is probably still reading from the shock. I'll let you judge as we listen to the five things that Rob Carter would choose from his life to preserve in a time capsule. never know where people are going to go you can absolutely pick anything you like 
that's the great big wide brief you get. I love picking them actually. Oh, yeah. great! I've, yeah, I've, I've, I really like this. And I feel like I found a new podcast that I really like because I'm not a huge podcaster, but I really enjoyed this. So I'm definitely going to go back and listen to more of them. I think it's great. I was tempted at first to think, oh, I'll pick just silly, funny things and we can have a chat about some funny yeah. stuff. But actually, I thought it, it's quite a nice challenge to actually genuinely pick my real five things and my one which I'll throw away. Well, we'll get to the fifth one, but I mean, yeah. Well, you'll see what I chose, but I mean, yeah, some real... <laughs> a real. <laughs> it was interesting trying to think what I would actually put in my time capsule. Well, let's find out what they are. Let's find out. Yeah. What's the first thing, Rob, you'd put in there? I'm going in chronological order. So the first thing I'm going to put in my time capsule is a film that I made that was lost. So I was at school the social hierarchy at school is all kind of based on where you were in the rugby team kind of thing it was very much a sort of Mm. sporty school and I was not a very sporty kind of person and me and me and a couple of friends we found our own way of kind of climbing up the social ladder I guess by being weird and being different and it's kind of how how I fell in love with performing and just trying to be maybe that's kind of where I, I this kind of desire to be unique or something comes from I, d- I don't know but it, this kind of like just wanting to do something different and so we just found a camera I think someone had some kind of really bad camera and we made this film we made two films so the, the first film that we made was our version of I guess this was what we thought satire was I mean we were very young <laughs> and it was the first thing we'd ever made yeah. and the first film was a parody of Narnia but all the characters replaced with politicians. So it was called The Chronicles of Westminster, <laughs> The Lion, the Witch and the Politician. <laughs> and it was, I think the thing that was really magical about this time was that we didn't do any editing. We, we didn't edit a single line. It's just like we wrote it and that was it. I remember sitting around in the kind of school bit with the computers just being like, well, this is how it'll start, I guess. And maybe this will be the next line and this will be the next line. And then we just wrote it all the way through. And we're like, well, let's go film it. Um, <laughs> so we, we went and made this film and it was sort of, I'm trying to remember all the characters where it was kind of the uh, the fawn was Tony Blair, but just because my mate could do a good Tony Blair impression. Mm. I was butchering Gordon Brown, I think, and, and all sorts of things. We didn't really know too much about politics, but, you know, we were just having a go at what we thought satire was, literally just replacing these characters with these characters, and we weren't saying anything about it, really. We just thought it was silly. Yeah. Who was the Snow Queen? The Snow Queen, I think that was Gordon Brown. I think that was me <laughs> in my chariot, which was my Renault 5 at the time, This like the worst car in the world, whipping Tony Blair, saying, faster, Tony, faster, and... <laughs> My friend saying, eh, 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 Gordon, Gordon, I, 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 I'm going as fast as I can. It was sort of, and it, you know, it was just nonsense. Or was he the, yeah, was, was that the fawn or was he the, I can't remember. Maybe he was whipping the fawn, I can't remember. <laughs> but again, we just sat around and we were like, who's a snow queen? And we're just like, well, I don't know, Gordon Brown. I don't think we were saying that he was a, a snow queen or anything, you no. know, or any kind of evil person. We just thought, I can do a half good Scottish accent. It's quite impressive though, isn't it? The decisiveness of youth. Oh my God, so much. It's like no one knew the word no. It's like a sort of drama school improv class, <laughs> the way that we just said yes to everything. Yeah. There was one bit where we sort of put a call out to all the kids at school saying, look, we're going to have a battle scene. It's going to be everyone rolling up newspapers and just beating the crap out of each other, basically. Mm. We're going to do it at one of the playing fields, four o'clock on Wednesday, Who, who's up for it? <laughs> and we thought, yeah, we thought 10 people will turn up and we'll edit it to make it look good. 
I know 100 people turned up or more, <laughs> half of them in red ties, half of them in blue ties. And obviously, you know, you give 15-year-olds the ability to go and hit each other with a newspaper and they're going to go absolutely wild. So this scene was epic, this epic scene. Obviously, you've just got playing fields in the background, like goalposts and stuff. It didn't make any sense. But... <laughs> and, oh, I remember that was the day of the Ofsted inspection and the <laughs> Ofsted inspection <laughs> were watching us, watching 100 kids smacking each other around the head in newspapers. And they just gave us a weird look and walked off. I always remember that. Um, <laughs> that school closed next year. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised it's still open. So we made this film and then we, we saw sold it around the school. So we sold it for a fiver and we thought that in order to make it sell, we would add some sketches in at the end of us imitating the teachers. Mm. Pretty crass stuff. Like I think the tagline that we got to sell the thing was, we've got a sketch of Mr. I won't say his name, but it was one of our music teachers. It's very puerile, but, you know, they were sort of enjoying themselves to classical music or something like that, you know. <laughs> yes. It was just a very basic thing, but we just thought that would sell. We sold it for a five around the school. I think we made £650. Wow. And we went and bought a camera so we could make our second film. And, I mean, I don't know where this confidence came from to do it, but we just... So, so we made loads of copies of this film. So this film we do have, but then we went to make a second film, and this second film is the one that we've lost. Uh. So the second film was the same thing, but it was basically... Um, a Christmas Carol, but the characters replaced with the royal family. And it was called A Royal Carol. Bad title, but again, someone would have just said it and everyone was like, well, yeah, I guess that's the film. <laughs> Prince Charles, I think, was Ebenezer Scrooge. Mm -hmm. James Blunt, for some reason, was Tiny Tim. I think that was me. I sat in the corner singing... Singing <laughs> My You're life Beautiful. Is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, singing You're Beautiful. And everyone's like, we talk about Tiny <laughs> Anyway, we've lost it. I was messaging the guys today. I was saying, you know, do you have this film? They said, no, I think he's got it on his laptop. He's got it on his... But because we just left school, we didn't make any copies and sold it. So we've, we've lost it. So this film has been lost to the annals of time. Oh, no. So I've got I've got no idea where it is. Has anybody got a copy of the script? Oh, that's a good question. I I mean I wouldn't be too happy with that going out. I mean it's going to be pretty loose. <laughs> no, but I could tuck it in the time capsule for you. If I find it, I'll send it to you, and you could. Would you be so kind as to add it to my time capsule? Of course, yeah, yeah. When your characters take off, or one of your characters take off, and the television people say to you, "So, Rob, what do you want to make?" You go, "Look, I've got this great idea. It's a Christmas Carol, but it's not really." It's the royal family there. Oh, the room is going to explode with excitement. It's the height of satire. <laughs> it's one of those things where I think in my head it was so funny and I, maybe I maybe it's a good thing I we don't have a copy of it lying around. It's just that, you know, those memories in your head, they're just so good. And you just think, well, maybe it wasn't that funny. And who knows? But maybe it will be better just in sitting in my head than if we actually saw a screening of it. Yeah, I think that's often true. And of course you remember the making I mean, with all things that you do as a performer, it's not necessarily the actual end product that you remember. It's the process of putting it together. Yeah, absolutely. It was like a holiday. It was like the, I think it was the holiday, the summer holidays after school had finished. It's just when I fell in love with making stuff. Mm. We just felt really attracted to the idea of making something we could keep and writing something stupid and just putting so much time and effort into something so stupid. Mm-hmm. And it just really got us through the summer. We talk about the nerve of youth and the decisiveness of youth, but in fact, you've kept that. That's a great thing to have practised when you were that age and to have retained to do the characters that you do. 
they take a great nerve. Mm. You don't know it's going to work. <laughs> oh, no. And I still get told occasionally that they don't <laughs> by a fee-paying audience. No, but I think you're right. I think that is still what I'm doing. And I do feel, you know, you you, you often feel, like, oh, maybe I'm not exactly where I want to be yet with, with my career or whatever. Mm. But then you just think, actually... I'm still doing that. Yeah. I'm still on my summer holidays from when I was there. I'm still playing around. I'm trying to make stuff work. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. But I think that the, the reason I want to put this in my time capsule is because it does remind me of that, as you say, that confidence of you to just sort of make things and then just kind of deal with the consequences afterwards. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, and it's so easy, I think, to kind of prejudge things or work out why they're not going to work before you've made them. But just sort of doing it and not having any, just, just taking a risk and not worrying too much about the consequences or even the quality. I mean, it's so much easier to write a second draft of something once you've just done a vomit draft mm. and just splurged out some nonsense. But I still need to remind myself of that, I think, at the moment. So Yeah, yeah. If I saw that film, I think it would it would encourage me to do some more splurging. In that case, we should put a royal carol into the time capsule for you. That's the first item, Rob. Yeah. OK, let's move on to number two, chronologically. Chronologically, the second item was an item that I have in front of me here. I've got to found it in my basement. I've, I've brought it up. Uh, it is carrying on the theme of putting in a lot of time into absolute nonsense. <laughs> it is this little book. Can you see this? It's called The Dictionary of Technical Terms. Yes. This was at university. I was doing a Shakespeare tour around Europe. Amazing experience yeah. that we got to do. And again, it was another hol- it was another thing we did in the holidays. I think like I wasn't too excited about going home in the holidays. My home setup wasn't, you know, wildly exciting. I was looking for projects and silly things like this to do. And anyway, this was an amazing opportunity. And I kind of stumbled across being like acting from the days of Royal Carol and things like that, when I knew I wanted to be a performer. This was kind of going to the next step, I guess. This is sort of, yeah, I mean, it was a proper Shakespeare tour. So it was a proper like theatrical production. Mm, Who organised it? It was an annual thing. So it was all student run. It was an annual thing. Mm. It was called ETG, called European Theatre Group. So I think it was, yeah, I think you, you had, you know, actors and directors and stuff at uni and you had technicians and producers so you had everyone Mm. everyone was there to make this show so yeah we had like student producers that were with us on the bus on the tour bus (laughs) driving around europe Uh, we did a production of julius caesar i was playing mark antony absolutely loved it yeah and one of the things we had to do at each venue because we were putting up our own set and taking it down and everything and so we had to do our own get out Mm every day where we had to take all the set down and there were so many wires and plugs and <laughs> ropes and and like, you know, lighting rigs and all this stuff. And we carried everything with us in this massive coach. And yeah, so you can imagine us, what well, we must have been 1920, just wanting to go and have fun. And we had to take, every day we had to put up the whole set. We had to take it all down. It was kind of a boring job. But we made such a joke out of it. We just made it, we turned it into this massive joke, basically. So the, the whole joke was that we were all like, technicians and we just came up with our own language for (laughs) all of these boring like lights and like wires and stuff yeah so basically we came up with our own terms for every single piece of equipment that was lying around (laughs) yes stupid joke and at the end of the tour we had a secret santa so it was a five pound secret santa and my great friend and amazing actor uh josh higgett gave me this book and it was a dictionary of all the jokes that we had made and all the terms that we had come up with over the course of this like three week run. Oh, how brilliant. And there are like over 300, I think, (laughs) definitions in here. It is mad 
how much effort we put into this. But I love it for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, it's the, probably the best gift I've ever been given, and it was for a £5 secret Santa. So it's reminding me that putting a lot of effort into a gift for someone is never going to go to waste. No. Just don't expect anything in return. Give someone an amazing present, and just something good will come from it. And this is one of the best things. So I'll, I'll show you. So section one, wires. <laughs> it's got the technical term, which we called it. So the first one on the list is J squared. <laughs> yes. It has a definition, which is thick wire used to power the motherboard, which was another term we came up with, <laughs> and formerly called the distro. So any technicians listening will know what a distro is. I, we had no idea. And this thing goes on. This thing goes on. We've got technical terms. We've got section two, fastenings. We've got section three construction equipment we go all the way through to at the end i didn't realize we had a section that was called useful phrases and words and it's essentially just i'm going to read you one here word or phrase clear <laughs> meaning multiple uses generally used to assure others in the immediate vicinity that the task being undertaken is safe and going according to plan also used to confirm that a task has been completed <laughs> i mean we just walk around shouting clear clear and like <laughs> The thing I like about this is we turned a really boring task into a joke. Mm. And it made me realise, I guess, afterwards, we just thought it was silly. But when I came home and I really thought about this, it was like the power of a little bit of humour to get you through something which is difficult Mm -hmm. or boring is incredible. And I just loved the fact that we had... Like, we were the best technicians there were because we were so keen to play this game at the end of every show. I'm sure you've done similar shows like this. I have, to, yes. You know. And you remind me of them. I know this is maybe quite... It's, it's quite weird to get on board with, I guess, because it's all just one joke. So I'm, I'm worried it sounds a little bit like a big in-joke. But, I mean, the power of that in-joke was, was amazing. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think the technicians really loved us because we were working so hard just to get everything done. Yeah. Because we just loved playing the stupid game. And I think I still use this kind of tactic, I think, in my life. Well, last night's an example. We're just hitting the four-month regression stage for our little baby, mm. Bonnie. And you've got to make these decisions at 3 a.m. when you're so tired and your baby's been screaming in your ear. And you've got to decide, do we feed her to sleep? Do we rock her to sleep? Do we not touch her? Do we let her cry for a little bit? Do we always kind of... Mm. And it's such a stressful thing to have to think about that we've... <laughs> we came up with this game, which is that me and Amy have a meeting under the covers <laughs> because we don't want Bonnie to hear... Obviously, no. what we're saying because we, so we, we, we one of us calls a calls a meeting and we pull the duvet up and we sort of say right who's taking notes this meeting what are the uh, action points what are the and it's just such a stupid thing to have a meeting <laughs> under the covers but it I mean, it sounds like a euphemism but it's not we <laughs> and we just like I look forward to our little business meetings mm. so it's now uh, it takes the takes the pressure off the stress of having a baby scream down your ear for two hours straight. <laughs> <laughs> I did a tour of Austria with a Shakespeare play, Measure for Measure. We had brilliant fun, but we had two vans. We had one that was basically packed with all the actors and the other had most of the set in it. And so two people drove that and we lost contact with them. And of course, this would have been 1970 something. So nobody had a mobile phone. We had all the money in our van. <laughs> and They had no money and none of us had credit cards. We were all students. So we didn't know where they were and they didn't know where we were going. We then drove to a police station and said, we've lost our van. Could you help us find it? And they said, yeah, what's the registration number? And of course, we all looked at each other and went, no idea. And there was one bloke who was actually the sound engineer who sat in the back, kept himself to himself. And uh, I think probably almost certainly autistic because he told us the registration number and they traced it. They got a police car, found it and escorted them back to us. 
This sounds like a film and it sounds like a writer's meeting where we sit down and we think, well, how could they figure out who <laughs> remembers the... Yeah. Why don't we introduce an autistic character who just writes down number plates anyway? It, it sounds way too convenient. <laughs> it does sound convenient, doesn't it? But he absolutely <laughs> saved our skins. This also sounds like the setup to a good comedy, which is we had two vans. We've only got half the stuff. We've got the left-hand side of the set. We've got three-fifths of the actors. <laughs> half of us will be doing it in our own clothes. That's a great setup for a sketch. It I like is. that. It's a good idea. Those moments of stuff going wrong on stage or just stuff that's unexpected is just what, what line performance is all about. I absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. I, my most memorable times on stage have always been when something goes wrong. One example that comes to mind, we did an Oscar Wilde thing and a guy, <laughs> this guy skipped out four pages because he had to do this big, clever Oscar Wilde speech. This was at drama school. Yeah. And he suddenly just got lost and had to come up with something clever. <laughs> and in the heat of the moment, he said... Well, when a man has enough, that will do. (laughs) And just walked off stage. Oh, the wit of Oscar Wilde. (laughs) (laughs) The wit of someone trying to be funny like Oscar Wilde. Yeah, but those moments are amazing. Something happened fairly recently with me as well during a comedy show, which was that in one of my last shows I was doing as Christopher Bliss, there was a section where I had to impersonate one of the members of the audience. And they, this wasn't so much something going wrong. This was just something so unexpected and mad. It just made me really value live performance. Mm. Essentially, I, I pretended to be someone from the crowd and I took their jacket and I was doing an impression of their voice and stuff like that. And then his, his wife said, oh, um, his brother's in his pocket. <laughs> I said, so, sorry, it sounded like you said his brother's in his pocket. You know, she said, yeah, he is. I said, it's, what? What do you mean? Like a picture of his brother? And she goes, no, his brother's in his pocket. But it suddenly clicked. I was like, no, that can't be what she means. And I just very sort of subtly put my hand in my pocket and I felt a little velvet pouch in the guy's pocket. And I was thinking, no, and just sort of slowly took it out and it was this little bag and in it were the ashes of his brother. Wow. And we all knew what it was when it came out. I mean, it Mm. was just obvious. I mean, you know, I have never held anyone's ashes before, but it was just obvious to me what that was. And the whole crowd just like, I've never experienced a gasp like it. It was incredible. And obviously the show started, being a silly comedy show as well, it's like, I was like, well, that's the best heckle I've ever had. That's amazing. But what an extraordinary way to describe it. To not say his brother's ashes are in his pocket, but to say his brother's in his pocket. Yeah. Perhaps that's the way he thinks of it, that he carries his brother around with him. He does. He said, he, you know, it was he, he passed away recently and he really enjoys comedy shows and he would have loved to be here tonight. And it was just the most amazing, beautiful moment. And it was like, you know, and the crowd was so on my side, I think, because they were like, well, I mean, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> yeah. But just that idea of something in the room that happens that is just memorable, is just infinitely more memorable and amazing to experience than going and seeing Mm. a surprising twist in a film. You just can't replicate it. No, no, I love those moments. I've always enjoyed those moments on stage. Some actors are terrified of them. I always like things when they go slightly off piece. (laughs) I like the danger. I like seeing danger in someone's eyes a little bit, you know, Mm. that kind of chaos, just a, a little bit of chaos. I just really like, yeah. Yeah. You know, you don't want speeches to become passive and you you want to be even just feeding off an audience. I think that's why I enjoy just doing live comedy so much is that even if I try to make things the same, I can't because the audience are reacting differently. But even just acknowledging that is, is, I think audiences really appreciate being acknowledged 
in the room. Well, that sense of play, I think that that book, again, that's two things from your early life that demonstrate the way you're going to go. It's a great thing to take into being a father, I think, to have that attitude in life, to make each moment, even something as boring as taking a set down every night, to turn that into something that you enjoy doing. You will need to do that as a father. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that's something I'd like to put in my time capsule and take that essence of play with me forwards into being a father. Brilliant. Okay. We've gone very philosophical. Oh, yeah, we have. Well, just wait till you hear about my, my, my thing I don't want. So the, <laughs> the third thing, <laughs> I hope you're ready to go philosophical. Yeah. My third thing is it's not so particularly personal to my history or anything like that. It's just an image. Mm. And if you're not familiar with it, I want you to look at it now. It's called Eke Homo. It's a botched fresco. It's the funniest image I think I've ever seen. And it is an image of, so basically this this 80-year-old woman tried to restore a fresco of Jesus and botched it so badly that it is, I think, the funniest individual image that exists. (laughs) It's awful. It is absolutely awful. But I think what I'm trying to achieve with Christopher Bliss as a character is this idea of trying to create something so bad that it's good. And I think I stumbled across this thing and realised that this is essentially the essence of what I find. Of It almost boils my humour down into an individual image. And so I think if I were to keep something on my wall, if there's one image I could take with me into another life or whatever, I think it would maybe be, well, a picture of my family and my (laughs) daughter. Let's have that first. But secondly, is something that that just made me smile, just a little something to make me smile, I would would look at that image. And I wanted to read to you just because it's such an amazing story. I had another look at this today. Mm. I looked at the Wikipedia page for the town. So it's called Borja. I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that. So on the Wikipedia page, they say this. In 2012, octogenarian amateur painter Cecilia Jimenez (laughs) botched a partial restoration of an unremarkable Eke Homo fresco depicting Christ by blah, blah, blah. The spectacularly bad results garnered worldwide attention, blah, 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 has been called one of the worst art restoration projects of all time. So basically, it's so bad that it's good and... It has kick-started this weird, um, you know, pilgrims are going to this little village now to go and look at it, and there's been an opera written about it, and there has been loads of money that has been pumped into the church and local charities, and it's ended up being this wonderful thing that has come out of something which is so horrific. So it's still there in that awful form. They've not repaired it. (laughs) Yeah, no. (laughs) I think they can't repair it. I think that she has just painted over it, and they're thinking, oh, no, like this is the last remaining work of this particular artist, (laughs) some 17th century thing. (laughs) And it was such an awful thing, I think, for for the town, but it turned out to be this wonderful... I don't know if they would if they're still embarrassed about it. I'm sure maybe they are a little bit, but um there's other examples of this that I just find so funny. So, um do you know about The Room? The film The Room, it's like the best worst film. So, there was a film done recently called The Disaster Artist which was about the guy who made the film. It's a guy called Tommy Wiseau who made this awful film and it's so awful it's beautiful. It is a piece of art. It is just unbelievable how bad it is but it's not so bad it's unwatchable it's like a whole it's just elevates itself to a whole new thing Mm. and i'm just constantly on the lookout for these kinds of things i mean there's an amazing band in america called three beat slide it's like a dad and his two kids and it's uh, the songs are just i'm not being nasty it's just like 
they are so confident and so joyful with the stuff that they do <laughs> that they don't stop to think that whether they should or not. Yes. And this is the the, <laughs> the mindset of this octogenarian amateur painter to think, you know what? I can do this. Mm-hmm. I can do this. And just for me, that is the funniest thing in the world. That is the essence of like, of humour to me. I've got some gloss. I've got plenty in the shed. I can do that. <laughs> I've got some lipstick in my bag. I can, <laughs> I can paint on the, the lips of Jesus Christ. But it's almost like that, isn't it? It is like somebody has gone, I've never done any painting before, but I'm sure it's not that difficult. Yeah. How hard can it be? Yeah. It just, you know, I mean, I can, I can look at somebody's face and go, yeah, eyes and things and stuff. I was working with my granddaughter the other day on a painting she wanted to do. And I went through that process of saying to her, are you going to do the eyes? And she said, yes. And then she said, look, granddad, look, the eyes are like this. And then they have eyelashes coming off the edges of them. So she drew these eyelashes. And then she said, and then it's white. So we put white in it. She said, and inside white, it's a coloured bit. I said, right. I said, is there anything in the coloured bit? And she looked at my eyes and she stared at them for quite a long time. And she went, there's a black dot. And it was a real moment of revelation for her. I loved it. Oh, wow. I can't wait to have those revelations with the I've put the painting on the wall. I framed it. So she put the black dots in the she middle. She put a black dot in the middle, yes. She'd never noticed before. Oh, that sense of wonder when someone finally realises something. So, I mean, that's a big thing to realise, isn't it? Yeah. I remember when I first realised that pupils were holes and weren't black patches. Uh, I was blown away. <laughs> I think some, someone said to me, yeah, you know, your pupil's just like a hole. I was like, come on, it's not a hole. Otherwise, stuff would fall in it. Mm. And then when you look at someone's eyes, you're like, well, I mean, it, obviously you've got your cornea and stuff in front of it, but it's essentially a hole. Yeah. Um, wait, is it? I'm not really sure. Actually. I th- now I I'm saying it. it. Now I'm saying it. <laughs> really? Do you still say, no, hang on a minute, no, otherwise things would fall out of it. <laughs> <laughs> My belongings would fall out of it. It can't be. Yeah. I mean, that's why I leave the plug in. Otherwise, all the electricity would fall out of the socket. <laughs> The things we think we know but don't. Oh, my God. Yep. I can tell you that my granddaughter is definitely a better artist than the person who's botched this poor Eke Homo. It's sad, isn't it? But that idea of exactly as your granddaughter was doing, well, I start with this bit and then I do this bit, it's also that chain of events, isn't it? Like, mm. she never set out to do She probably didn't even set out to do the whole thing. She just thought, oh, hang on, the, 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 there's a little bit of yellow there that just needs doing. I just touched that up. Yeah, and then just like a thousand decisions later, and you've come up with the worst thing that's <laughs> ever you step been made. Back and realise yeah. that the the eyes are all looking in different directions. It's, <laughs> it's really, I mean, it is worth googling. I agree with it's you. It's worth googling, but it's very difficult to truly make something like that. So by doing my shows, by doing a Christopher Bliss show, for example, the idea is I'm, I want to make something which is beautifully dreadful. Mm. I want to make something which is so bad. But yet the structure still has to be good enough to keep us entertained. We still have to be listening. Mm-hmm. So you can't go up there and just say complete drivel. And the art of trying to create something so bad that it's good is something that I've spent the last maybe five years trying to achieve in its various forms. And it's a very difficult thing to do, isn't it? Because when things are inadvertently awful, then it's instantly funny, isn't it? To deliberately do something that looks like you're inadvertently doing it. That's the hardest thing, I think. I, I always find that when I record my gigs, I I think, oh, that bit was brilliant. And it was the bit that wasn't 
planned and I start like stuttered over a word and then I go back and I try the same thing the next night and it doesn't work. And it's just because I'm trying too hard. I'm trying mm-hmm. to hit this sort of, I've given up trying to do that now actually. And I just try and allow like 1% of, actually I don't script things precisely now for my live stuff. I script them almost precisely, but allow a little bit of flexibility in the delivery of each line to keep it fresh, to mm. keep, because you, I, I think that's where so much humor comes out from my shows anyway, seems to come out from the bits that I don't plan, which is, I don't know if that's good or not, but it's trying to allow a small bit of uh, play, I guess. There's always that freshness. There's always that element of making the decision on the moment. Yeah, I think that's what I find difficult, actually. I think when when I said before, it's a skill, by the way, I didn't mean what I'm doing is a real skill. I mean, (laughs) it's a skill to do the thing that I can't do so well, which is exactly to rehearse it so that it comes out to sound completely natural rather than just genuinely being a bit flexible with your script. Mm. That's what I find especially hard in TV because you just think, right, we've got one take here. I think, all right, I'm not going to play around with this. This line's been going through my head. I mean, I know it sounds basic, but that's it. You read a script once and the first time you read it, it's brilliant. Mm. I think I remember having this note of drama school. I just did this scene and the guy was like, you've got it. I was like, wow, amazing. (laughs) I'll just do it again. And he was like, no, no, you've, you've completely lost it. You completely lost the thing that you had. And I, oh, sorry. Oh, well, I'll just try it again. And I never got back to it. And he even said to me, you just have never got back to that first. <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, I still think of myself as very young and very early in my career. So I'm, I'm by the way, I'm very flattered that, I, that I'd be on this podcast talking about stuff. I almost feel like I don't have enough experience to be talking about, you know, <laughs> anything of note. But, but I... Uh, I can imagine when, you know, my early 20s or something, doing some show and being like, you've got to stick to the script. And I'm just sure that once you get older, you think, well, the audience are just other humans. And what would I want to watch? Well, I'd want to watch someone having a bit of fun. Mm. There's no rules. I remember a rule that we had in, um, we did clowning at at drama school and we had this this mad teacher that people either loved or hated. I loved him. He really kind of pushed us. And he just had this rule. Everyone kept asking questions. Are you allowed to do this? Are you allowed to do this? And he just said, look, here are the rules. But the main rule is, does it work? That's the only question that you really need to ask about. Do Mm. you come on from stage left or stage right? Is there a fourth wall or not? You know, how many people are on the stage? Are you allowed to do that? He just said, well, does it work? And so you could break any rule that he said as long as it works. And that's always stayed with me, that does it work? I mean, that's the only thing that really matters. Mm. It's only the audience that kind of decides. It's so easy to forget that as well, I think, with an audience. You think, well, do the producers like it? Or if I'm writing a script, it's like, does the production company like it? Will the channel like it? Mm. And again, you can go up as high as you like and does the controller of the BBC like it? And all those things are useful, but ultimately you just want the audience to like it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that that dear octogenarian lady repairing that fresco so beautifully, that's exactly what she thought. She thought, does it work? I think it does, you know. I really do think a cross-eyed Jesus, that's going to work. I think it will. Hmm? Let's unveil it and see what happens. (laughs) Yep. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to put that into the time capsule for you. That's number three. That's number three. Yeah. Okay, so let's move on to number four, which means we only have two left. We have one that you like and one that you want to get rid of. Yes, of course. So my fourth one is... Okay, ad break time. Back in a minute. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back. I hope there were enough ads for you to make a cup of tea. Not that I really care about your thirst, just because we get paid if there are ads. Totally selfish, you see. Right, let's find out what else Rob Carter would choose to put in his time capsule. And the one thing he'd like to bury and forget forever. So my fourth one is, of course, the smell of my newborn daughter. I want to bottle it up into a little vial and I want to keep it for the rest of my life. Oh, I'm so delighted you've chosen the smell. And it is the smell with a newborn baby. I never knew that. You'll never forget that smell. Did you have the same? So how many Mm. children do you have? I have two children. I mean, I love seeing newborn babies and I will just go straight in for the smell. (laughs) I'm so glad you said that because I feel like I'm obsessed with the smell and it sounds like a creepy thing to say. Like I sniff my... I sniff my baby. And I haven't really said it to anyone. I thought I'd, I'd talk to you about it and hope you didn't judge me too hard. But I'm glad you're a you're a sniffer. Mm. It's a unique thing as well. It doesn't last very long either. No. So this is why I want to get back to it. I keep sniffing Bonnie to, to try and get back that initial high, that first hit of the smell. And it was something I had no idea about. I'd never even thought about it. I just thought about, you know, all these these things about people saying, you know, when you when you first lay eyes on your firstborn or when you first hold them in your arms. No one said the smell is going to be something. So the smell to me was like, you know, when people say, like, imagine if I could show you a new color, like purple, and you'd never seen it before, and you'd just be blown away by it. Almost like your granddaughter being blown away by looking in your eyes and seeing there was a black dot in the middle of the colored bit. Mm. In the same sense, this smell was like a new dimension or something. I'd never smelled anything like it. My brain just could not compute. And I had a small like implosion in my brain where I just felt like, I, I don't know, just ecstatic. And it was such an amazing feeling. And I instantly felt connected to her. I know that she's, from an evolutionary point of view, she's designed to have a big impact on me, but it was so cerebral. It was just such an amazing instant hit. Mm. And yeah, I've been trying to get back that smell ever since. So I'm very glad to hear that's a universal thing. That well, not I'm not doing. sure if it is universal. Oh, is it not? I, I right. wonder if, in fact, you and I have noticed uh, it. Ah, just two fellow sniffers. <laughs> 
And I have mentioned it to other people and said, oh, the smell of a newborn baby. And <laughs> oh, I've had no. some sideways looks. And they yeah. say, yeah. <laughs> well, when they crap themselves, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine you saying that, like everyone goes around in a circle. This is like NCT class that I've done where everyone's sitting around talking about the class that you do where you meet fellow parents. Everyone goes around saying a thing and it comes your turn and you say something and everyone's like, sorry? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Exactly that. Everyone, Everyone's sitting around and you say, yeah, but the smell of a newborn and... <laughs> it's about? possible I might do a poll on Twitter or something and Let's see do, a Twitter do people poll. remember the smell of their newborn baby yeah I literally don't have any words to describe it because it, there's there's no other smell that's like it it's not a little bit of this a little bit of that it's just this smell so anyway yeah I keep going back in to get to get there's a sweetness hit. to it though isn't there a strange way to describe a smell but it smells sweet yeah I guess it does I mean it certainly does now that I'm used to it but when it first came I don't think I could even have said it was sweet I mean I guess there is a sweetness to it now it was just literally like a new dimension has opened up. And so it's like, I think that it's the reason that I want to talk about, it, I guess we'll put it into my time capsule, is that firstly, the smell itself is amazing. And just like, it's something that I would love to smell again in that concentrated form. But also mm. I do feel, I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of negative parenting, jokey kind of, whether it's podcasts or, tweet, or tweets or comedians or stuff, it all seems to be that, you know, oh, it's a bloody nightmare. You're so <laughs> tired and, it's, oh, it's, you know, nappies. and blah, blah. It's the most amazing thing. And a new dimension has opened up for me. And I just feel like everything I do has a deeper purpose and everything. And I don't want to sound too wanky about it, but it's just such an amazing thing. I mean, I just never heard people talking so nicely about having children, especially I'm sure once you've had children for ages, it becomes maybe more just like, oh, my kids are doing this or whatever. But anyway, as a new father, I'm, I've just, I'm bowled over by it and I, I'm just obsessed with it. it. It's lovely. I think that's gorgeous because I remember it very clearly. I mean, I remember walking down the street, the sun shining. It probably wasn't, but it absolutely felt like it. Just over the moon. I, I just, I can absolutely picture myself. And occasionally I walk down the same street and that feeling comes back. But again, I don't know. Is it unusual for two men to be sitting talking about the joys of having a new baby? We're all told we're all supposed to be sort of disassociated from this thing or we're just there to earn the money. It's a crazy thing. I think men should be just as excited by the whole thing, if not more, because, in fact, they weren't necessarily that involved with the whole thing. And I think I am of the generation where we were the first people to watch our wives go through those things. Oh, you mean so before the, the generation before, before wouldn't have even have been in they the room? They all sat outside, yeah. Mad. Yeah. The idea of women have to, having to go through that with, with no support from a partner feels unbelievably unfair. I mean, it's already kind of... It's already unfair. <laughs> it's already <laughs> pretty unfair. <laughs> to go even further is just, yeah, I can't imagine that. But yeah, I think I think you're right. People don't talk about it that much. And I, I even get like, yeah, first time I took Bonnie out in a sling, just go to Sainsbury's to get some milk or something. A woman stopped me and just said, that is so nice to see. And I just thought, I mean, that's nice of her to say it, but I shouldn't be being stopped on the street and being told that I'm doing something good by just taking my daughter out. But those first few weeks of having had a baby are the most intense thing, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Everything is thrown in the air. The sleep patterns, having the responsibility of having this baby there. 
that you've got to pay attention to nearly all the time. Even when they're asleep, you're sort of sitting and looking at them. Yeah, going in last night, is she still breathing? Oh, well, I mean, what are we going to do if she's not? I mean, <laughs> yeah. of course, she, she must be. Yeah, And then going in and mm. checking and checking twice and checking that it wasn't you breathing and that it was her breathing. <laughs> and then you shine a light on her face and she wakes up and she's like, what are you doing? Because I'm breathing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the worry and then the, the elation and the joy and then the tiredness and everything. It, it is amazing. The thing I've really liked, which is something I've just started, I think I was talking to you about about the time we were going to do this podcast. I had to slightly change it because we're starting a new uh, sleep schedule for her. Mm. But the idea of a schedule, I love it. I mean, I'm sure most people <laughs> that I'm not I'm not normal because I'm so self-employed and don't have things that I necessarily have to wake up for. But the idea that I have to wake up at seven every day now, I love it. Mm. So for me, if anything, it's given me a bit of schedule to my life. But yeah, it's 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 amazing. It's amazing, and I can highly recommend it to anyone. It's a great way to get your life in order. That's for yes. sure. I mean, when I'm thinking, well, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, drifting around. I think, well, I better make something soon, or I better work out what I'm doing, or I better just be confident in in my own skin, or just have yeah, just have my life in order because I'm not the most important thing in my life. No. Again, it's like a battle. You've been you've been in battle together. You feel so together. Yeah, I can't believe people used to just just leave the women to get on with it. I mean, that is just yeah, quite odd, odd. <laughs> you never look at your wife in the same way again. You always think, my God, what is this extraordinary person I've married? I didn't realise yeah. any of this. The wells of resilience and strength that they just seem to tap into mm. at a moment's notice is is inspiring. Yeah, yeah. The idea of the man not being there at labour and just seeing a baby come out, it's almost the way that people describe to children how, like, sex works. They say, like, oh, mummy and daddy have a little hug and then a baby comes out. I mean, it's sort of juvenile to keep the truth away from people just in case they get a bit scared by it. Mm. (laughs) Because men have such babyish brains that to them it would corrupt their innocent little heads to be confronted with the truth about their Mm -hmm. strong, independent wives. Brave, resilient. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But that smell, that beautiful smell, the smell of a newborn baby. I'm going to turn into one of those people who just turns up at maternity wards and says, any chance I could just pop in and... When you see the report on the paper, not very well-known actor gets arrested. When you see that headline, you'll know it's me. I bet you'll end up dropping my name into it as well. My friend Rob told me about it as well. He told me to do it. He's another sniffer. He's another baby sniffer. It turns out it's just me and you. Everybody else is listening to this podcast. He's going... What the fuck? What the fuck are they talking about? The smell of a baby. They're a weird couple of guys, aren't they? No, it's the taste. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Okay, let's put that into the time capsule. We've got one more thing to put in there, Rob. Yeah, so, okay. I found it quite hard to come up with this, okay? I was thinking the last few days, what is it that I want to never see again? Because one of my kind of... Uh, And I said we may touch on philosophy. One of my sort of life philosophies, I guess, is to not have any regrets. I don't see the purpose in any regrets in saying, well, I wish that I had done things like this because of X, Y, and Z. I always think that there's something you can learn from whatever your situation is, um, no matter how bad it is. There's always something you can take forward. So so there's not many things that I just think like, oh, I wish I had done things differently. But anyway, just as it happened, okay, I don't know if this is the kind of thing that people would put I don't know if this is what you want, but I'm going to do it anyway. Just like I was saying, having the conviction to just go with my gut instinct on this. Two nights ago, I had a monumental dream 
I had a a nightmare, I suppose. It's an uh, it's a recurring nightmare that I have. I've had it since I was a child. And the nightmare is that I'm going along, I'm having a normal dream, and I come across this door. And I've never actually spoken to anyone about this. I just thought that it happened two nights ago, and it was so vivid that I'm going to bring it up with you. And we can... I haven't thought too much about it, but we can unpack it, I guess. Okay. There's a door that appears to me in a dream. And I know that there's something bad behind it, but I don't know what it is. And I'm drawn towards the door, like magnetically. I cannot move away. I'm sort of sucked slowly towards this dark door. And as a child, it would frighten me. And and the door would suddenly open and there would be something like very quick and very scary. And, and I would feel this intense inner tightening, which was a real pain. And I would wake up with this odd pain that I could, I've never experienced any other way. I can only describe it as like a sort of tightening in my chest. And I could never find a way to escape this door. I'd always get sucked towards it. It would open and there'd be some monster behind it. It would be like a hot breath of a monster or just like the idea of a monster and I would suddenly wake up. And it's how I developed this idea of being able to wake myself up from dreams. And I can sort of lucid dream as well. And I think it's all come from this trying to wake myself up. And so I developed a way of waking myself up so that as soon as I got drawn towards the door, I knew there was something scary behind it and I would sort of shake myself out of it. Mm. And so I guess maybe 20 years ago, I learned how to do this. And every time since, I've woken myself up and I've not gone through it. And it just so happens that two nights ago, I was confronted with this door and I don't even think it was because I was talking to you on this podcast. I don't know. Maybe subconsciously. I don't know. Just so happened that I decided to consciously go through it for the first time in 20 years. Right. And I opened the door and I immediately get... And I was thinking it's kind of like the Harry Potter... There's that thing in Harry Potter where there's this cupboard and it's like whatever... When you open the door, your worst fear is going to come out of this cupboard. Mm. which I always think is, is a, a dreadful thing to have in a school. I mean, I, I can't imagine the sorts of things that 11-year-old boys would see come out of this. I mean, your teacher would know everything about it, but it's an awful idea. Wait until the Ofsted report for that one. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking, come on, I'm in my 30s now. There's no monster that can scare me. I'm not scared of anything. I'm a dad. I'm a dad. I'm not. Dads aren't scared of things. Dads are protectors. No. And so I was thinking, whatever this monster is behind this door, it's not going to scare me. But my God, I was wrong. Okay. The thing that happened when I opened this door was this black metal pipe slid down inside me into my chest and it represented the darkness of my soul. And <laughs> what happened was I then got sucked through multiple doors that got smaller and smaller and smaller and each of them hurt me more and more and more, genuinely hurt me on like this tightening inside. And every time I got sucked through a door, another like a concentric circle, like cylinder slid down and made this cylinder of the black dark soul even thicker. And every time I got sucked through a door, it was revealing another slice of my dark soul. And so I went through these doors. I went through a cat flap and I went through a mouse's hole and I ended up going through like a pinprick. And I realized that this door was like a trap. It was a trick and it was an infinite regression of doors and I would never get to the end of it. I thought when I opened it, I'm going to confront my fear and I got sucked through an infinite regression of doors <laughs> and I had to shake myself awake because I thought I, I, I can't go through this. And But when, when each of these dark black metal pipes slid down and like clicked into place, it revealed to me a new side of my 
true nature. And the true nature was that the only reason I do anything is for selfish gains. And the only reason that I'm a comedian is because I'm trying to prove to myself that I'm funny, not because of all the things I've spoken to you about, about wanting to play and wanting people to have a good time and wanting to, <laughs> you know, discover things. And so I realized in this dream that I was a purely, purely selfish person. And then I woke up and I was absolutely so scared <laughs> I, I cannot believe, I mean, I just felt so bad. And I went to sleep, I felt so bad. And I woke up and I kind of felt okay. So I guess it wasn't the biggest life-changing thing that I thought it was. But I had a horrible time going through that. And it turns out that as a 34-year-old, I, there are things I'm scared of, but they're not external monsters, they're internal monsters. <laughs> there we are. Tomorrow on Jack and Ollie, boys and girls. <laughs> And I'm so aware that that's maybe the darkest thing I've ever said, but I thought I'll throw it at you and see what you think of it. <laughs> but it's not a bad thing to realise. I think that maybe that is true, that we are all fundamentally only concerned about ourselves. But that can lead to what seem to be altruistic acts, because they're for our benefit. It's a good thing to give people things. It's a good thing to be nice to people. It's a good thing to care about people, mm. because it helps us. And even if you do accept that you are fundamentally totally selfish and only ever do things for yourself, that doesn't stop you being a useful member of society or a good person. Well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> I mean, I still don't know. When I had that dream, I didn't know whether that's, that is my true nature or that's what I'm worried my true nature is. Yes. I don't know. But I think you're right. that It's nothing to just be scared of. And th Yeah, I think actually facing up to these sorts of things... Are the sorts of things. I mean, maybe this is because I've had a baby and I'm, I'm so much more willing to go deep with people and talk about these really important things. Whereas usually, I'm sure if you asked me just before a baby, what's the thing you want to throw away? I would have been like, <laughs> oh, cheese, because I'm lactose intolerant. And then we would have spoken about how I don't like cheese or so, you know, something. And I would have come up with a silly story about it. Yes, you would have come up with five routines. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's what you wanted, by the way, but it's certainly not what you've got. <laughs> you know, strangely, when I started this podcast, I thought I thought I was going to get, and it almost always turns out to not be the case. I quite like people genuinely picking something and then actually not being sure why they've chosen it. Hmm. And then we sort of sort it out as we go. Yeah, well, that's, that's partly it. And I, th I think you're right about that altruism. I think in, in the case of performance or something like that and... Um, was it, I think Laurence Olivier has some quote on this. Someone asked him, why do we act? And he just says, look at me, darling. <laughs> but yeah, as you say, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think selfishness doesn't necessarily mean what we all think it means, which is that you're just completely out for yourself and you don't give a damn about anybody else. Because that would be self-destructive. It would not be a good thing to do. It doesn't help to have people living in poverty although we seem to allow it, mm. it doesn't help to not educate everyone. It would be very sensible to make sure that everybody had proper health care because we would all benefit from those people being healthy and using the amazing capacities of their brains for things other than just simply trying to survive. It's a great waste that we don't educate everybody properly. Yeah, you're right. Actually, that's right. Even thinking from a selfish point of view, like us taking more Ukrainian refugees would just, from a purely selfish point of view, I think I read an article mm -hmm. about this recently, just saying like, it would just be good for 
the economy for jobs, that seems to me to be kind of fairly self-evident, actually. The idea of not doing that is not only kind of banal and stupid, but it's just like you're not even acting selfishly. Mm. People always say just doing something for the sake of doing it. Like you said, making someone a beautiful present, not expecting any reward for doing it and giving it to them. That person in your mind who gave you that book mm. is an extraordinary person, is somebody you will treasure because they did that seemingly altruistic act. And I'm sure that, in fact, when they did it, it was an altruistic act. They did it because they wanted to give you something and say thank you for the fun that you'd created with them. Yeah. But it's not, in the end, because they benefit from it as well. Yeah. People not being happy as well, because their life is a struggle and painful and awful. In the end, you're the one that's going to reap the whirlwind. Well, yeah. So well done for confronting your your own feelings of selfishness. <laughs> Am I that person? If you are, it doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. That's nice. And you very nicely spun that in my favour, where you could have very easily gone down a horrible route and uh, really taken my <laughs> character to pieces there and talked about why I was made up of black pieces of metal and what, what exactly it was. <laughs> <laughs> larger and larger tubes gradually filling your entire person with hatred and selfishness. Yes. So in a way, I was happy that I opened that door and I confronted what must be subconsciously my greatest fear. But I feel like maybe I would benefit from locking the door of darkness mm. and not needing to open it anytime soon. Yes, Absolutely. I'll throw away the key. Can I? Can I lock it away? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Time Lord. Well, you've been in. You know what it is. Don't go back. Maybe this will be the last time I ever confront it. Like the fact that I've gone through it, it might mean that it never appears in my dreams anymore. Or maybe when I open it next time, you're going to be standing there saying, selfishness <laughs> can be altruistic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you're behind my door of darkness next time I open it. Yes, so do I. But I will go boo. You know that, don't you? <laughs> you dare go boo. That's our friendship over. Rob, how lovely to talk to you. And thank you for telling me the things you want to put in a time capsule. It's really, really enjoyable. Thank what you. What a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Rob Carter. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast enough to want to subscribe to it and please do rate it or even review it before you move on. It's very much appreciated. If you want to know what we're up to, then you can follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Do message us and suggest people for us to talk to that you'd like to hear on the podcast. Oh, if you're enjoying the theme music, then do let me tell you that it was written by Pass the Peas Music obviously, and is available for free on Spotify. This cast-off production was produced by John Fenton-Stevens for Acast. Thanks for listening. Sleep well, and like they used to say on Crime Watch, don't have nightmares, especially if they involve mysterious doors on the revelation that you are black of heart and soulless. Of course, they do say follow your dreams, don't they? And actually, I've tried to live by that rule. I really should have ignored the one where I was naked in Sainsbury's. Oh, well, bye. Bye.